Welcome to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. I'm your host, life and business coach, Kate Hawley. I work with entrepreneurs and creative change makers who value depth, impact, and purpose. Many of my clients are like me. They dream of creating prosperity through the value they provide, but they also want equity for others and sustainability for our planet. The scarcity mindset of our culture tells us that this dream isn't possible, that we are not enough, that we don't have enough, that there is not enough for everyone, and that's just the nature of reality. But really, it's just the nature of predatory capitalism. I'm glad you're here because we are going to prove that sad story false and make better meaning to build our future with. Here we go. I'm here today with Tracy Kate Broyles. She's the creator of Somatic and Energetic Alignment. Um, she's a writer, teacher, dancer, artist, and core energetics therapist. And I've known Tracy a little bit through our shared engagement in the Portland contemporary performance world. And I'm really excited to talk to her today about the intersection of being an artist and working through some of the cultural scarcity mindset that can come with that and whatever else brilliance we get into today. So welcome, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really enjoying your podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm excited that you've been listening to it a little bit. So Tracy, we were just getting caught up. I would love to start by hearing a little bit more about your work because it sounds so interesting and I actually don't know as much about it as I would like to. Can you um, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing through somatic and energetic alignment? Yes, absolutely. It is really a blending together, I feel, of all the things that have interested me for a long time. And the core of that might be how our psychology plays on our body. And then deeper into the core of that is how do we connect with what's really divine, I, I want to say, within us, what's really authentic and connected and unique and loving that we're here to share. So the work, it is creative. Um, I do a lot of movement. I teach classes. I do one-on-one -on -one sessions, and I'm currently working on a workbook, which is about how to creatively crack into some of these things. And I use a lot of language that's around energy. I think everything is energy. So I think, you know, our, our thoughts and our emotions have a vibration, our patterns of thinking, our belief systems have a vibration, but also our blood and our bones and our breath. All of this is what we call energy and energy all has a consciousness to it. So when we get into the body and when we start moving the body and exploring things, we can really unpack where we have distortions of beliefs and where we have tucked away feelings that we were too scared to feel and where we've been, you know, telling ourselves that we're too much or not enough or we can't or we shouldn't. And so really 
through this combination of working with words like talking, working with going into deep healing states and working with movement. I support people in just really starting to unpack all that, get the currents flowing. And then as the currents flow, that's, you know, typically when people start to really feel their own resonance, their own unique resonance of what they want to bring to themselves in the world. Hmm. That sounds really interesting. So in your work, in your classes and in your one-to-ones, is it more like a dance class, say, you know, where you're going in and maybe doing some improvised movement? Or is it more like a yoga class where you're going through specific forms for the purpose of healing? Or how how would you put it on? I don't even know if that's the appropriate spectrum, but I'm trying to get a sense of it. It's great. And it's evolved a lot. Um, and that's maybe part of, we were talking about the entrepreneurial journey. And so that's all been part of it. I think to start with that spectrum, maybe more on the dance class aspect, but not typically here's a, a, a phrase or a, a set group of movements, but more, I'm going to guide you into a consciousness or an awareness, um, in your body. And we're going to explore that. And sometimes I, I, involve like formed movements and they usually have a purpose, a very specific purpose. Like you're saying about, about yoga poses, you know, they, they all have a reason really. They're all there to sort of do something. Yeah. I'd say it's more, it's more of a dance class, but it's really improvised. It's very curious and somatic, but we're probably going to do some meditating. I'm going to probably ask you to go into some emotional material or some psychological materials, just something that's catching you at the time. Often there's writing, sometimes there's drawing, Mm. there's a lot of play. Like I find that the more in the movement classes, the more intense the material gets, the more play it also needs to to feel safe. So so there is sort of a theatrical play element to it sometimes as well. It sounds great. I um I'm curious, you mentioned that this does kind of go along with your entrepreneurial journey. One of the things that Tracy and I were talking about a moment ago is how both coming from kind of an artistic background, it's not, it's, it's most artists end up becoming entrepreneurs in one way or another, whether it's because they're self-producing or doing some of those same types of things, or really that just becomes the obvious way of like, oh, at some point I need to kind of monetize the things I'm creating and doing. And so it's not necessarily that you start out saying, I'm going to be a business owner, but sometimes you end up there. I'm curious for you, one of my fascinations is people who do really complex, deep, creative work that's not easy to put into like a container that's very quick and easy to understand and sell. I imagine that that's something you come up against quite a bit with your work. Can you tell t- talk a little bit about that and what your experience and journey has been with that? Ooh, that's that's a that's truth right there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny. It's actually something that I I used to actually get on myself about too. I would get frustrated because I I couldn't do an elevator pitch very easily and. Um, I I wanted to have a a sellable Mm -hmm. phrase, but, you know, c'est la vie. It's just, you know, (laughs) like (laughs) I also didn't want to kind of limit the work, but uh, that's kind of another question around setting boundaries around your work. And, and when I first started doing, so I I had my 
dance work, you know, and I was creating work and I was becoming the weird entrepreneur trying to sell it. And, you know, this is 20 years ago. So I'm, I'm making posters and like, um, finding bulletin boards and doing weird stuff like that. We <laughs> oh, used to yeah. do back then. I remember then. those days. <laughs> and yep. not really using the Xerox machine, things like that. Yes. <laughs> like grants where you have to cut and paste things <laughs> together and then Xerox it. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. So starting back then, um, and working really hard at that, but never really expecting to get much money or just hoping to be able to pay whatever deeply discounted venue price I had, you know, um, and not really much mm-hmm. considering of like paying myself or paying other artists, which kind of sucks. Um, but at the time it wasn't even processing that that much. Yeah. And then I would think about making my money in other ways. And so I, for years was in and out of the restaurant business and that's kind of another aspect, but also about 20 years ago, I started teaching Pilates and I was like, Hey, great. This is, this is what I can sell, you know? And and it's true. And it was kind of easy Mm -hmm. and you work for a studio and they kind of do a lot of the work for you as far as getting people in the door it starts to feel like you're doing all this work that's just next to the work you really feel called to be doing. That's what happened for me. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of aspects in in things that I was offering that I really connected with, but I always felt a bit fake or something or a bit like like I'm almost almost but not quite is what I would say to myself a lot. So that's what teaching Pilates felt like. I loved connecting with people. I had a lot of really deep relationships that would form over time. I was helping people become more embodied and that naturally led to all kinds of other things, but it felt almost, but not quite. I felt like I couldn't really claim what I wanted to be doing. And I think that would in a way show up in, in my artistic brain as well. I think there was a lot of uh, times that I didn't give myself full permission to explore what I wanted to artistically because I still had ideas that I needed to fit into X, Y, or Z category. I think that my whole journey for the past really like 20 years of doing all these aspects that were kind of braiding together but not quite fitting together, it took a lot of work and trainings and getting older, frankly, and accepting that money is important and that I needed to make a living and to, to really like step into the current of like, you know, I don't have endless energy like I did when I was young. I don't have the energy to go to rehearsal and then go work at my restaurant job and then maybe teach a class in the morning. Um, and about 10 years ago, I, uh, yeah. I became a mother, a stepmother, and then that's all of a sudden taking a lot of energy, you know, so I really didn't have the extra energy. So mm-hmm. I think that to really circuitously maybe answer your question, um, at some point it's just kind of all had to come together or I had to almost give it up. And part of that was learning what I was specifically uniquely offering 
that maybe wasn't a sellable package, but there was a quality to it. And also learning about being a business owner, being a solopreneur, as they call it, solo entrepreneur, and accepting that as a reality. Like, well, that's what it is. Like, if you want to do this, this is what what it is. Yeah. It's so interesting because I I don't know if you have this experience, but I know that for me, when I was primarily an artist, I had a lot of, I guess, judgment. I didn't even think about it at the time, but I had a lot of judgment that business was a certain type of thing that was inherently anti-art, right? Like business is the enemy of the art. <laughs> so like even just having to do the administrative work for the theater company felt like this burden and it felt like this uh, contradiction or this conflict that was taking away from something that the art wanted to be. Um, and it's taken me some years of, you know, again, stepping into entrepreneurship in a way where I decided it, this is really not optional. This has to work out and it has to work out in a way that doesn't feel like it's compromising my creativity or the essence of who I am. And even the idea that it has to I really want to challenge that idea that like, that's just a story we have about what business is, what entrepreneurship is, just like we also have a story about what an artist is, you know, what creativity looks like. If you are an entrepreneur, business owner, self-employed, or otherwise working on building your own unique path towards financial health and creative freedom, I want to invite you to check out my new group program. Depth Entrepreneur Conservatory. I'm currently enrolling our first cohort and we kick off in April 2022. This program supports business builders from the inside out. So working on the skills and applying the practices that help you break free from scarcity thinking and disrupt the old assumed ways of doing business that might be unintentionally perpetuating the model of scarcity capitalism. We'll be working with your business as an ecosystem where you are one of the most alive roots of that system. So rather than giving you one specific method or strategy for a generalized result, this is going to be a more holistic business building program. There will be teaching and coaching, working through the creative process of finding your own vision, values, and voice, and ultimately creating the results that are meaningful to you. We will discover, nurture, and expand your current resources so that you can create a sustainable, equitable, impactful business that models the world you want to live in. So if you're intrigued, I encourage you to really take some time to read up on the program over at the website, depthentrepreneurconservatory.com. I'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. You had mentioned this kind of also becoming aware that there are these stories that we have right from society about what it means to be an artist and how to some extent that might mean you shouldn't expect to make money or you don't need to make money or if you're doing it because you love it or it's your passion or it's really authentic for you then somehow that's in contradiction to making money is that kind of what you were saying when you were talking about the stories from society yes absolutely um and with what you were saying before too, I, I can remember having this feeling or, or almost, um, you know, uncovering this feeling. I didn't even realize I felt this way. And I remember uncovering this feeling that there was such a sense of like dirtiness around money. 
Yeah, there was sort of some higher mighty artist imagery that went along with it. So you can't like have the the money and the art at the same time. And I've actually talked with some people about this. Um, I feel like this was so cultural and I don't necessarily think it's the same, but there was such an archetype in my growing up. Um, like uh, I could try to think of some of the movies and different ways it would sell, but it was like, don't be a sellout was such a, was a thing. And it was Mm -hmm. the whole romanticism of the starving artist. And, you know, you're just living on no food and cigarettes and just your passion, you know, or you're, you're living in your warehouse and (laughs) like you've got no hot water, but you've got your (laughs) love of your poetry to keep you warm or whatever it is, you know, there is, it was very, I feel like it was very romanticized. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I believe that for me, I bought into that imagery because it made me feel better because I didn't know how to make money doing it. And it didn't really seem very viable. Um, and I wasn't a super competitive person. Um, before I left the East Coast, I remember some people that I had like trained and dance with, they were, they had a real competitive spirit and they were going to go fight for their spot, like on Broadway or something like that. And I was always a little scared by that. And I think in hindsight, it's because I just was way more experimental than I realized. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, so, so I kind of consumed this imagery because it helped me feel better. And, Part of one way I was able to see that in relief was that I, when I was working restaurant jobs, I had no problem hustling. Like I had no problem like, I'm going to sell that $100 bottle of wine. I'm going to, you know, whatever it was. Like like I, I, I can get my money this way through this restaurant hustle, but I had so much resistance to even trying to get money through this creative way, which is much more in alignment with my core values and what I, what I do believe is important Mm -hmm. in the world. And so I remember looking at that and I was like, okay, something's awry. Like that's not, something is weird here. Something is not quite right with that. And I, I think that's just part of, I think it's part of the narrative from a society that hasn't that's wanted to reap the benefits of an artistic uh, whatever presence, beauty, what it can bring up and inspire for the mind, but it doesn't want to pay the cost. Yes, absolutely. I love that discussion. I remember at some point realizing when I was working through a lot of my money mindset issues, realizing that I there were certain things that I took for granted it's okay to ask for money for and other things the things that were closer to my heart or closer to what I want the world to be it felt harder and harder to ask for money for those things even though I value those things at a much higher level right like you and I probably both value somatic energetic alignment more than a bottle of wine right and yet the culture has given us a lot of permission to say that wine has value and that it's okay to charge a lot of money for it. And it's no big deal. There's no social taboo. There's no, it's just like totally normal. I remember having this, um, I had this experience a few years ago where I went on this um, retreat. It was part of this business training I was doing. And we went on retreat at this beautiful home that was owned by a former NBA um, all-star fellow who's very sweet. And we were like in the sauna and we were 
having this really nice time and kind of talking about our dreams of like, wouldn't it be nice to have a beautiful home like this and have a nice sauna? And I just had this moment where I was like, there is nobody that I know who would ever question that someone who is a professional basketball player should have a ton of money, should have a beautiful home, should have a sauna. But everybody I know who's doing like purpose-driven creative work, I, I shouldn't say everybody, but quite a few have a bit of a complex of like, oh, how how could I ever think that I deserve that, could get that, would be valued by society at such a level that, that would I would ever have access to that? It strikes me that there's like a internalizing and perpetuating that story that we kind of have to break, we have to break it and say that story has always been incorrect. The The value system has always been wrong. And it is up to us as the leaders of the people who really value this to show you that the value system is wrong. Yes. Yes. I a hundred percent agree with that. And so I'm curious, like for you, because you've been doing this for, you know, a while now, like what has worked for you, I guess? I know you you kind of mentioned that you feel like you're in process with it. So as we all are at all times, but what has felt like the most helpful to you in terms of shifting from that place of, I can't do this. It's not, you know, congruent for me as an artist to like make money. What We're, so we're supposed to live in this financial scarcity um, into that curiosity that you're holding that more could be possible. Yeah. One thing, this this kind of combines with the thought I was having when you were telling that story about the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking how there's this shadow thing with how we internalize the archetype or the imagery of, you know, don't expect more starving artist. And, and that we sometimes we bring that into a competition or a judgment. And I do think this happens. So not only would society be looking in and like, well, how on earth could this artist afford this house, which nobody, like you said, blinks an eye at a NBA player having. Um, And we internalize that from society and we bring it to each other. You know, we, we judge each other. I mean, not you and I, obviously, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe <laughs> totally about you know, that right <laughs> people do people judge other yeah. artists and there's so much there's so much like competition that's created that we start tearing each other down and so when you're asking too about one of the things that helped like shifting the mindset to really honestly like not not talking myself into it but shifting to a place in my heart where i actually feel genuinely excited for people when they have success, when uh, somebody creates something that they feel really good about, when someone has an amazing healing business and they're helping people, when they have a coaching practice and they're changing people's lives, to really feel what it feels like to be genuinely excited. And Mm -hmm. I feel like when I started doing that, there was even surprise, like people get shy about like, ooh, I got this grant. They feel shy because they think other people are going to come for them. Because sometimes they do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. There's there's that thing. Uh, I have worked with this coach that says this, collaboration, not competition. And so what is it like to yeah. really genuinely know that, like, we support each other, we can rise together, and, uh, yeah. So, so that. That piece about, like, learning how to authentically work with the jealousy monster. Um, and that's... Mm-hmm. 
working with the jealousy monster, I think is, is like working with the scarcity monster because that only comes from scarcity. That only comes from, if you have it, I can't have it. Or even deeper right. than that, if you're good enough, that means I'm not good enough, which is, I think, more yeah. at like the emotional heart of of the jealousy sometimes. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And thank you for sharing that because I think it's, I, I think that's very true. And that was definitely my experience in the artistic community that there was an undercurrent of scarcity and that type of jealousy and that type of fear that like if that there's, it's a zero sum thing with opportunities, which is pretty absurd because really we were all creating something out of nothing or we wouldn't have been there in the first place. It's not like we created something because somebody gave us permission because we got one of 10 spots to become creators in the world. So, but I do think it's, it's maybe par for the course when you are in a very under-resourced sector of society, which artists tend to be more under-resourced, right, than some other people. Yeah. And I think that's the um, the challenge with scarcity mindset is to be able to overcome it even when you may be low on resources or you may not see the resources in front of you. I know I'm you talking about this reminded me of my very early days when we started my first theater company, which was Fever Theater, which we started back in like 2003 maybe. And in the beginning, of course, we had no idea what we were doing, you know, like even just like how to write a grant or anything. It was just like, I don't know how people do any of this. And somebody suggested to me that I start reaching out to other companies and other artistic directors and say, like, let's have coffee. Can I talk to you about how you do this? And I was so scared because I was like, why would they do that? You know, there was this sense of like, but I'm the competition or I'm the somehow I'm going to be seen as um, had there some type of adversity with them. And I was greeted with such warmth and welcomeness by some really very like well-respected, you know, directors and company leaders in town and who were completely, um, forthcoming and just like, here's some things you should do to get going. And it was very collaborative. It was very supportive. And I don't think that the, these small companies could survive without that type of mutual aid and just attitude of like, yes, I would love to see you thrive. And even, you know, when you were talking earlier about the value that artists create that doesn't really get compensated for, I think about this all the time with real estate in Portland, because this was an, a heyday when people were all moving here, but the real estate was really cheap. And we could get really cool rehearsal and performance spaces for so cheap. And there was so much beautiful, amazing work happening during that time because it that leads to a lot of artistic thriving when there's like available space that is affordable and affordable housing and all of those things. Just like you could live a really high quality of life here, right, without having to make a lot of money. And it was because of all of the art that was getting made, right, that we have these areas in town that the real estate skyrocketed. And even the places we were rehearsing in, the landlords would tell us, well, I'm going to rent to you for this really cheap discounted rate until we renovate the building and we start charging more, which now at this point they all are doing. Um, so I think it's really interesting. I know you've been in Portland, I think, as long as I have to have seen that transformation. But I think a lot about there's a lot of money that people have made on real estate 
that came on the backs of the work that never got compensated for the artists who created the image of value in the city. Yes. Do you do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. Oh, I mean, so uh, yes. <laughs> um well, that aspect I definitely experienced directly with being, you know, part of a collective that was in a space and then exactly what you said. I, I think it's happened to me three times. Then it's like, time to move on. Oh, you got to go. You got to go. Um, and I, I think with that, I just want to like give a little shout out to uh, Ken Unglis. I don't know if you know him, but he's a real estate person who creates these artist studio spaces and then agrees to basically not raise the rent. He's like, here you go. Here's a building like this mm-hmm. is going to be dedicated. Um, I was also thinking when you were talking that you meeting with these people who were very generous with you and fever, which I remember fever. I saw, I think I saw <laughs> the first show. <laughs> um, yeah, but that that's a really great example of resource of a different kind of resource. Mm-hmm. The resource of like a wealth of information. And um, then you talked about the resource of space and it makes me wonder about, you know, trying to stay in a resourceful mindset that it, that is itself a creative act because we have to keep looking for for the different kinds of resources. So maybe the resources, information or space or nature or people, uh, you know, that that really opening opening the mind up to what a resource can be, I think is really important to take stock of what our resources are. That's beyond just a dollar sign and includes a dollar sign, you know, Yes. And I think that's the challenge. The You could say it's the light and the shadow of having been a starving artist is that the resourcefulness of realizing you can get resource a lot of different ways and it doesn't have to be through money. It That's a huge skill that I feel I really grew through during that time. Um, but at the same time, I think I got so accustomed to looking for ways to get something without a monetary exchange because that was the assumed reality that I stopped paying attention to the importance of the money as an equal <laughs> partner in all of it, right? Um, until at some point you realize, oh, you know, I'm, it's, I think when you were describing like that, tra- some life transitions where you realize I've been really over delivering and under earning for a very long time. And that's something you might be able to do during certain phases of life when you have, you know, the extra resource of your time and energy and et cetera, but you, it's not sustainable and it's also not professional, right? And I think that's what we're hearing a lot more pushback on these days. It's not professional to expect highly trained people of any field to work for free. But when it comes to, I certainly like in artistic work and performance, there's there's quite a bit of it. And there certainly was inside of our work. And I certainly did a lot of work for free. Um, and it took me, again, a lot of time to shift the inner stories that formed around that time to say, to get comfortable with, it's okay for me to want to make money for my work, like all of it. It's okay for me to actually want to earn money, no matter how much I'm enjoying it. No matter how creative it is or how fun it is or how cool my work is, I can still want to get paid for it. 
Okay. So I'm curious. I'm curious about in your journey, Tracy, as you're kind of nodding along and like, yes, you know, um, what has helped you? What has worked for you in terms of supporting the shift? Because, you know, again, whenever we're talking about, we're talking about the shift from noticing that you have a scarcity mindset that is keeping you like kind of stuck in a limited resource place to realizing that you would like more resource and that you have to shift the way you're thinking about it in order to, in order to get more of that resource. Do you have um, examples from since you kind of went from that, like able to over deliver to realizing, actually, I don't have as much capacity to just give and give and give. I need to receive like has, uh, can you talk a little bit about your own journey or shifts that have occurred for you with that? Well, one thing is, you know, we're talking about all this. And so ultimately it's breaking down the either or mentality, like the either I can do something that lights me up or I can get paid. And so breaking that down and saying, no, it's both. And actually that is as, as, as should be as much as I can. And I know that's actually not true for everyone. And so I don't want to say that because some people, it really works for them to kind of have what they feel like is their, their calling and their, you know, maybe they have a particular work life and that's great. But for me, I really feel integrated when it's together. So, but getting to that point, of course, has been a huge process. And so I was reflecting when you were asking that question on all the things that have worked for me to help me in this journey. Um, so this is just me personally. One of the really big things was looking at family stories. It's funny when I really, the first person, the first kind of like helper healer person I ever talked to about this problem they were like, oh, well, I checked in with your ancestors and they are thirsty and dry. <laughs> I was like, what? He's like, so, so that kind of in a way started the journey. He's like, you need to, you need to set an ancestor altar and you need to be giving them food and water. I was like, oh, okay. I, you know, that hadn't really been part of my experience before, but I, I did it. And I don't know, because of that, through that. But one of the big things was really understanding where these, a lot of these ideas came from for me, because it's beyond just what happened when I was an artist in my 20s. It's that that resonated with something inside of me that I already knew. And, and a lot of it, you know, it came from un, unspoken things that I experienced in my family, attitudes, learning the story about my grandparents who, you know, I don't know, it could be another podcast to talk a lot about that, but, but for me understanding that, you know, while my grandparents on both sides definitely had the privilege of, um, being white and capable, I guess, to, to move on. Um, but that they, um, there was a lot of loss in that generation, like, like major losses of, um, death and loss of property there. My grandmother lived on a ranch, they lost the ranch and then somebody died. And then, mm -hmm. you know, so there was just sort of a lot of like 
they sort of had things and then something got really destitute on the other side, you know, a, um, a parent died and they all of a sudden had no resource and income. So, so kind of starting to understand those stories helped me because I was having this feeling in myself. I was starting to recognize this emotion, this feeling that I didn't even want money, if that makes sense. This goes to what we were talking about before. I was afraid of it. I was literally afraid of it. I was afraid to have too much because I was afraid to lose. Mm. I was like, if I gain, it'll, it'll be gone. So better just to get used to this level of like not really having enough, but at least I'm in control, basically. Mm-hmm. At least I know what's happening. Um, so that story is not the same for everyone, obviously, but un- unfurling that for myself, both maybe where that came from in my ancestral line and then how it was affecting my unconscious thinking directly was really big, was really important. I feel that a lot of this work, like we were talking about before we started taping, it's, it's about an energy current. It's, it's energetic. So I can't just think at it. I can't just think logically at it. I have to understand how I'm manipulating my currents. Like you were talking about, you were saying the word receive, how I'm manipulating my currents about giving and receiving. So in addition to like the over, I can't remember how you said it. It was good. But, you know, the sort of the over over giving for not getting enough, Mm -hmm. there's kind of a reverse to that. There's like a backlash to that, you know, so... Another thing I would notice is that sometimes I would get really tight and I was like unwilling to give myself at all or like, like going to the restaurant thing. I'll give myself in this one way that's not really me and you can pay me for that. But I felt contracted around actually giving what felt true to me. Um, and whether that was from giving and not getting or just a general fear, I think, I think is we have to deal with the fear of letting that be seen and letting it be known and saying like, you know, and now pay me like it's intimidating. It's really intimidating to say like, Mm -hmm. I want to help you, but here's who I am. Yes. Maybe you have these trainings or that trainings, but you know, ultimately beyond what we're trained in, what we're offering is our essence and we're saying that that is valuable. And so there's there's all the stories are around that. Mm. I just want to I want to highlight what you just said about this is such a profound sh- uh this has made a profound impact on me as well when I have had moments in my journey where I realized that I wasn't being as generous as I wanted to be in my nature or I would see generosity modeled from somebody who was taking really good care of their resource sufficiency. Like they were making plenty of money. They were able to be well-resourced. And so they were able to be generous. And I started to have similar types of experiences where I was like, oh, I I feel that I cannot be generous because I live so generously <laughs> in the sense that I'm living with so much giving and not enough receiving. And the result is that it, it doesn't feel good. I don't feel like I'm actually being the person I am or that I want to be because I end up never feeling like I have any extra to give and I actually feel resentful or yeah, that contracted tight feeling or even just like, 
you know, possessive, you know, just all of those feelings that, um, or the competitive aspect you were describing earlier, all of that comes up when we're over giving and under receiving. Um, and it ends up being the opposite of what we had hoped for. (laughs) Cause the whole reason we started on that journey is like, you want to give so much, you want to be a generous person in the world. So thank you for, for saying that. I mean, it's such an important thing. I really think it is. Uh, I'm trying to remember how this was phrased to me. Well, and actually this ties into my thing. Part of it is getting help, you know, like reaching out, working with some people that could help coach me, working with healers, working with, and I think there's something about that because when you pay someone for work, that's maybe not exactly like yours, but similar, that's a statement too. Like, Mm -hmm. so as an aside, it's like, "Mm, I, I, if I'm trying to get a discount off of someone who right. does similar work that I do, like that's something I need to look at. Mm-hmm. And I certainly have done that. And I've had also the flip side of that is as I was younger and kind of coming up, I had a lot of people offer me sliding scales and, you know, offer me things that I was able to get things done. But ultimately I reached a point where I was like, okay, now I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to pay you your full price because not only are you worth it, but that's a statement to my being that, that I'm worth it. I'm worth it. <laughs> but okay, but that's an aside. Um, but what, what you just said, oh, what did this person say to me? They said something even like when you're not, you know, getting enough to be resourced, when you're not receiving enough, um, it was like, she said, almost like you're being selfish mm-hmm. because you can't show up fully. Like if you're not receiving enough, you're, it's just what you just said, then you're not showing up fully. And that's actually kind of a selfishness, like, yeah. and thinking about with all of the things that we, you know, it's not, someone's not paying you for an hour of your time. They're paying you for literally everything you that's come before. And all the training you've had and probably all the time you spend thinking about it and all the administrative stuff we do, you know, so there's so much to it. It's not really this like one-to-one ratio. And when we don't factor in all that, what you just said is so true. Resentment, it, resentment creates separation, Mm -hmm. like period, like energetically, I, you know, resentment feels like this sticky film to me. And it's, and it's real icky because it's kind of close to us and it's a little under the surface and often it's, it's under a layer of mask. Um, but it's very dividing. We can't really be in connection and flow with ourselves or with the people around us, whether that's our family or our clients, if, if there's a layer of resentment. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because as these solo entrepreneurs, ultimately it's up to us. It's up to us to say, here's the structure that makes me be able to show up fully for Mm -hmm. my work. Yes, 100%. That's something that was a profound mindset shift for me to realize nobody else knows what I need, (laughs) right? Like that is 100% your job. And you're like, if anything is your personal responsibility, it is to figure out what you need and ask for it and communicate it you know, and not live with the assumption that you cannot get it or that nobody will give it to you. Um, versus, yeah, because otherwise it's like, what do you think people are just going to show up and be like, you know what, you're not charging enough. I'll pay you a little more or, 
it, that's not how it works, right? Like you have to be a leader and your pricing and your asking for what you need is part of your leadership. And I have been on the receiving end of paying for some very expensive services, especially with other coaches, where I felt the generosity of actually their high price and their boundaries, like where they would, the leadership they were showing by saying, this is what this is, and this is what it takes for me to give it to you. And if you want it, you simply pay this. And there's no, yes, some of that, the old habits I had of like, well, is there a barter system? Can we trade this for that? Or do you have a scholarship for people that never pay full price because we're starving artists (laughs) or, you know, that whole way that I was used to living, kind of breaking those habits and saying, oh, you are modeling something that's actually sustainable. And rather than being a price, like, you know, being contractive around the price, I need to actually learn that this is where the flow comes from is to say, yes, you, you should totally get what you need and I'll give it to you. And then I will ask for what I need when it's my turn. Yes. Yep. Yes. Hmm. I totally agree. I've also had that experience and it is, it's incredible. It's incredible modeling. It really is. And it's really brave. And I know that you know, it's inspiring, it's, actually. And it's kind of funny to say, well, it's brave to like charge a bunch of money for something, <laughs> but it is right. Because we all know that, that you will be criticized if, especially if what you're charging for is one of your gifts, one of your passions, one of your, yeah, like, you know, I imagine for both of us, we have businesses and services that really come from something really meaningful to us and from a pr- values and a purpose and a vision for the world that is about way more than money, Right. And so I know how it can feel tenuous to say, yep, we do have to put a price tag on it because there's a price tag on everything else. I mean, that's just how it works, right? Like there is rent to pay, there is childcare to pay for, whatever, whatever your particular expenses happen to be. Most people do not accept barter. Most people do not accept compliments and exposure for payment. So, <laughs> so you know, you got to... You've got to become resourced in the types of resources that we are exchanging in. Like, I'm not going to pay you, but I'm going to write a really, really nice thing about you and put it on the internet. How's that? (laughs) I know. My last commercial landlord, if he relied on positive reviews, he would be out of business by now. But luckily, that's not what he trades in. He's like, nope, you give me the money. I give you the space. That's the only thing I care about. So... Um, Tracy, I'm curious because you are, I love that you started to talk a bit about the energetic work because I know that's so much of what you do. So let me see if I can put this into a question that makes sense. Um, what's coming up for me is what, what we're talking about on this podcast is both trying to conceive of and visualize and experience the shift from living in the scarcity culture to living in the space beyond scarce, whatever that might feel like or look like. And I'm also really interested in the how, like what are the things people are doing that work for that, that help with that? Um, I also have a pretty somatic background as a yoga teacher, and I definitely attribute a lot of my learning on this to my yoga practice. Like it is in my body that I've learned to go from contracted and scarce and that feeling of like, there's not enough here to suddenly finding this well of like, oh, wow, (laughs) all I had to do was like release here and activate here. And suddenly there's so much more resource than I thought there was. I'm curious to hear a little more about how, 
in the work you do energetically or somatically, do you have any experiences with this or even any practices that you want to share that support this? Yeah, great, great question. Um, right, because it's all in the body. And going back to when I was sharing some about like some of the unconscious old patterns I was working out, those are in the body. Those are in my nervous system. You know, if you're looking at your bank statement or your wallet, let's just be simple. And you've got $5 in there and you're like, that's only $5. Um, you're going to have $5 whether you sit there in contraction and panic or whether you focus on your breathing and feel the ground underneath you and take a moment to look around and assess the moment. And it's not denying like you need to make a change, but in that first moment of um, panic, and I think most people who have dealt with scarcity, and I know for myself, I've, I've, you know, you get that 4 a.m. wake up, and you're like, shit. Oh, sorry. I don't know if can I curse. Okay. <laughs> like you're, <laughs> you get that. And, and it's, it's in, it's in the physiology, you know, it's, it's your heart is racing. It's, it's panicky. So honestly, like I do think that number one is really just learning how to deal with the somatic um, experiences of it, because from there you can start to make choices. Every time, and I've made a lot of these choices, every time I've made a choice out of a panic state like that, it doesn't work out so well. It's like not, maybe it's not something I really want to do. And so I don't really like kind of show up for it. So I don't get much return or it puts me in a bad situation or I end up getting sick because I do too much or what, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Consistently, every time I've, I've been in a contracted anxiety state and made a decision, it doesn't work out well. And I can be in the exact same moment. And because I have the fortune to have had a somatic practice for a long time, I'm like, okay, I can feel my sits bones now. Like, let me look at the room around me. Let me just assess for a moment. Let me, can I feel my diaphragm? You know, all of the things, simple things, can I shake off a little and then make a decision. So don't, here's a piece of advice. <laughs> Don't make a decision out of panic. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't work. It doesn't work. So, so your tools for grounding, you know, are key. It is key. You can't think clearly from those panic states. Um, I also have been working just recently with um, a simple meditation, an I have meditation or thought practice. And it's really, I start from the bottom of my spine and I focus on different parts of my body. I feel it in my pelvis and in my heart and in my head and along my spine and just saying and doing my best to feel the vibration of, I have everything I need. And if I can't quite get there because life is like, no, you don't, no, you don't. Then I just say, well, what if I had everything I need? What if, what would that feel like? What would be the feeling tone, the vibration tone of I have everything I need? And, you know, as we go through the body, we're hitting all these different areas. We're, de we're dealing with root needs. We're doing with creativity needs and power needs and love needs and, you know, needs to articulate, needs for vision. So it's like I, I for me right now, this practice is important that I don't just stick it in one part of me, but I move it around. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that could be a resource, like feeling panicky. You know what? What if I have everything I need? Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's now a I'm going to make a choice. That's a powerful mantra. I have everything I need. And I love that question you asked of if you can't believe that you have everything you need, you can still pretend it's that's the power of the imagination and the power of creativity. You could just be like, all right, but for a minute, I'm going to play a character. I'll play the character of somebody who has everything they need so that I can feel what that would feel like, because that is the thing that will shift rather than any, you know, thinking and planning and perceiving that I can control the situation. Like it's the feeling into. I, I'm also struck by what you said about I also find it really powerful to go to like really basic things like my sits bones and be like, oh, like this body, that's the thing. We There's only one thing that we are all born with, right? And that's our body. Like that's the only resource that we come with. Like really, it's our body, our breath, whatever parts of the body we got born with and the brain that was in there and you know whatever, however you want to think about that. But that's what we were born with. And for many, many years, that was the only resource that human beings had when they were born. It's not like they were born into houses and trust funds and, you know, whatever. I mean, so there's this, because of the kind of privilege of our society, I think we do perceive that's not nearly enough, right? That couldn't possibly be enough. But what if it really is? Like, what if we can kind of go to that baseline of actually like me just being able to breathe right now is fundamentally that's what enough looks like. And everything else on top of that is kind of like a bonus that I get to experience. It's the resource that can't be taken away mm-hmm. while, while we're alive. And then, you know, then it, then when we die, it's gone, but it's the, you know, like you're saying, <laughs> yeah. it's the one resource we're born with. It's the thing that we won't be in loss with. Yeah, it is. It is there. And like what in, you know, that question we were talking about this a bit earlier, mm-hmm. the the question of worthiness and like, what does that actually feel like to feel worthy? I think it would have to start with feeling like, well, you are alive in this body. Therefore, you are worthy. Therefore, you are enough. You don't have to be or do anything else to earn your sufficiency in the world. Okay. I remember the first time someone said that to me, which was a one, a core energetics therapist I was working with like a long time ago. And it was honestly like bowled me over. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I, I was like, what? <laughs> I, it, it kind of shattered this thing where I was like, but here's all the things I've done yeah. that make me worthy. Yeah. It, it was, it was really, it was, it was kind of, it was a profound moment mm-hmm. to have someone just say, just being alive. That's it. What if you don't need to achieve or do any more to be worthy? Totally. I think I had a similar kind of bold over moment where in graduate school, the school I went to was founded by Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, the, who's like the founder of Shambhala Buddhism in, in the West. And he had this book we were reading for school that one of the lines, it's so simple. It's so obvious and simple, right? As these things are, as pieces of wisdom are. And he just said, you have an absolute right to be alive. And I remember reading that line. And the, my first thought was like, oh, that's so true. And it feels, why does it feel so surprising? Why do I feel like this is the first time in my life that I've ever heard somebody say, you have an absolute right to be alive, period, full stop, no conditions. Mm-hmm. 
Is there anything that I did not ask you that you were hoping we would talk about today as we kind of wrap up? I I think we I think we covered it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, we got to some really beautiful, uh, deep existential stuff. I love it. Well, um, Tracy, if people wanted to know more about your work, what would be the best place for them to follow you or find you or get connected with it? To either go to my website, which is tracybroils.com, and they can read my blog. They can see about upcoming things. Um, I send a weekly newsletter, which is something I've been really enjoying doing recently, just some kind of food for thought. And um, so they could sign up for that. And and then I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook too, but not as um, active these days, but I'm on Instagram as um, at somatic energetic alignment. Mm, perfect. Okay. And I'll put the links in the show notes too, so that it'll be easy to access for anyone who wants to check that out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for making some time to chat with me today. It was really lovely to hear more about your work and your perspective and kind of bringing together these different threads that I think don't get talked about enough. So I'm really excited that we got to have this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Um, and I'm so excited about the work that you're doing in the world. I really, I really am. I'm just following it and I, I feel your passion and your excitement and I know it's going out. And, um, so congratulations. Oh, thank you, Tracy. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the space beyond scarce. If you enjoyed this episode, please go over to Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps out a new podcaster. Thank you.